Welcome to Art Waves. I'm Marty Derlin. Today we hear from poets Dan Roberts and Gordon Black, organizers of the 18th annual revival of the Mendocino Spring Poetry Celebration, a day of open mic poetry readings scheduled for June 11th. Later, Shanks interviews Ross Travis about his performance, part of the Point Arena Fringe Festival. And we get a preview of the Sierra Nevada World Music Festival, returning to Boonville on June 16th through the 18th. Dan Roberts and Gordon Black each wended their ways to Mendocino County in the early 1970s. They joined a burgeoning poetry scene. Here's Gordon, recounting his experience of poetry readings in Mendocino some 50 years ago. I was a prose writer. I was trying to work on a novel, living in a chicken coop and at Val Pollock's ranch, and very happily, and working away and trying to write an anti-war novel in which the protagonist is searching for a phrase to put on a bumper sticker to resolve all the confusion in the American society and the disagreement about what is going on. Does that sound kind of familiar? That takes us back to uh, the days of uh, opposition and discord during the Vietnam period didn't consider myself to be a poet. I thought I was an experimental writer. That was my phrase for it. But I did show up these poetry readings to read paragraphs that I was spending too much time polishing. I was losing my forward motion as a writer. I'm spending too much time going for it perfect paragraph, which meant I was really moving toward uh, being a poet, which eventually happened. People around me were poets. There was Sharon Dubiago, Bill Brad, and uh, several other people, and we bounced off each other and turned each other into what we are today. You know, there are many different definitions of poetry, as many definitions as breaths one can take. Distilled conversation, I like that. My own definition of a poem is a pattern of words such that if you tap it with a little silver hammer, it rings. <laughs> wow. That's nice. Yeah. Do you have a definition, Dan? Do you have a poetry definition? If I do, it would be there'd be many of them because I taught poetry in the schools for 33 years. And so my definition of what poetry has changed a lot. I mean, I started writing poetry when I was in actually the eighth grade, but then a lot in high school. And um and I thought, you know, lyrical was a big part of poetry. The poetry I wrote at that in high school was lyrical, and it was also kind of a lot of exorcisms of getting stuff out of me that really had tied me up in knots. Like, I was raised in a really strict Catholic family, and I was also raised to ask questions about everything. And 
I asked too many questions when I was in the sixth and seventh grade and I really stopped believing in Catholicism and, and that created this huge <laughs> block with my parents. And the only way I could free myself from it was to write it out in poetry. And the teachers I had, at, I went to uh, St. Mary's College High School in Berkeley and we had really cool English teachers and they were into poetry and they were into using it as a way of liberating yourself. So part of me is, you know, poetry can be uh, a lyrical adventure. It can be an exorcism. It can be uh, an invitation. The best poetry to me for the writer is poetry that you start off with one idea of where you're going and it turns into this other thing and you follow it and you end up at this new place so that the act of writing is actually this um, searching and finding rather than knowing in advance where you're going to go with it. So what I focused on in teaching in the schools, which I felt really lucky to get to do, was getting kids to blow stuff out, you know, and also recognize the situations they were in. So I came up with some exercises. One was called My True Country. And I asked them to think about, you know, if their country is really the United States, is it Mendocino? Is it, you know, where is it? Where are you really at? And they used that model as a way to talk about what they really loved on this earth. So for me, there's the there's the poetry of the all-stars who say the best things in the best amount of time. And then there's also the practical kind of poetry where poetry can be used to clean yourself out, to get to express stuff that you cannot express in a real literal way. And, um, and self... Um, becoming self-aware. I had a paper out in the Oakland Hills and one of my clients, is that what you call it? Person that you deliver the Oakland Tribune to, um, was a poet from UC Berkeley. And I got to talking to him about it because I discovered that I could write poetry and feel way better about myself. And he said, save everything you write. And when you're 21, go through it and reread it and then throw away all the junk. And if there's anything we're saving, save. And I thought, well, that's kind of brilliant. And so I did that. And so when I turned 21, I went through and it all revealed a lot to me, but most of it was really stuff I wouldn't want to put out as, <laughs> here's my poem. You know, it was really more for myself. Mm-hmm. And Gordon, uh, do you remember an early poem? Or maybe even your first poem. Um, okay, well, here's a pretty early one, if I can remember it. Um, low tech in the great Northwest. You did a job, plastic tarp, shielding firewood against the winter worst. The sound of your indifference to the rain rattling wild deep in my sleep let me read a book better you in the wet cold and stiff than i 
<laughs> now, blinking new light, I haul you off my last named pieces of wood. Tug you stretching in the heat. Flash away the clinging drops, dry you, tie you, and save next year's 20 bucks. I'm calling it spring. Oh, that's wonderful. Now ah. that, that poem is problematic. That poem is problematic because in its original form, the price of the plastic tarp was six bucks. That was a long time ago. And that makes no sense anymore. And at that time, my little firewood pile was a lot smaller than it has to be now. So 20 bucks isn't exactly the right figure for the tarp anymore either. It's more like 40 bucks for the proper size tarp. So when does a poem ever become eternal? That's <laughs> the problem, especially when trying to fasten the poem to the changing value of a dollar. <laughs> it's the problem of bitter reality. <laughs> Starting in 2005, Dan recorded the poets reading live at the Mendocino Spring Poetry Celebration. He aired them on his KZYX program, Rhythm Running River, first and third, Sunday afternoons from three to five. Then COVID came. And then when the pandemic hit and we decided that we just have to do this um you know, get people to record their stuff and send it to me, and then I process it. And we had no idea there would be such a good turnout for it. There was like, I think the first year there was forty-five people sent stuff in, and so that was that's been really fun, really time-consuming to get a hundred to a hundred and twenty poems and have to go through and clean them up a little bit and then decide what I'm going to play and not play. But I love doing it. You know, it's kind of like I love teaching poetry in the school. I love just seeing more people having the experience of poetry. And one thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about this interview is that I'm really lucky because I get to hear the poem when some, let's say the recorded, the ones I recorded the spring reading, I hear the person deliver it. Okay. And that's one experience. And then I go back and I edit the recording and then I hear it a couple more times just because I'm trying to fit it into the music that I've come up with. And I get to hear most of these poems that I air between six and 12 times. And it really makes a difference in the same way that if you read a poem once, yeah, you got an idea of what it's about, but you don't really know how much that poet put into that, how much how much time you can rip holes in, you know? Well, a really good poem is packed. Every word is important and carries a certain weight and it's all condensed and in a small package with so much information and so much feeling and impact. So it takes a while to unpack it, I guess, you know? Yeah. And I've also found it's interesting that then when I, you know, I, I put the shows together and I've listened to the whole show. And then I, on Sundays or when the show airs, I listen to it. And I often go, holy cow, I didn't know that's what that poem was about. It just sounds different when it comes out of a radio 
surrounded by the world music. All of a sudden, the whole other aspect of the poem comes out, and I'm like, wow, that was great. You know, it's, I'm, yeah, there's so much, like you say, it's like, I don't want to say black hole because I don't think that would be the equivalent, but somehow <laughs> it's all this electronic energy is just forced in and the poets are the people that are lucky enough to get to put it on a piece of paper and somebody else checks it out. Another thing we, Gordon and I were talking about is like, there's this real, in the 70s and 80s and even through part of the 90s, there was these free newspapers like the Mendocino Grapevine, the Coast Commentary. I can't think of the other ones. There were several of them in the area where you did have a poetry page and people would send their poetry in. And there's no publishing going on around here right now except people publish their own books or whatever. And so it's this, these recordings are how, for a lot of us, that's how we're getting to hear each other, mm-hmm. rather than read each other. Okay. Gordon, can you talk about the your feelings about the relation between poetry and music? Well, there are people who think that poetry is music, a form of music. And trying to explain, there's a word that comes up for me, and that word is pulse. Pulse. They both have a certain pulse, which impels, there's motion, and there's a pleasurable sense from hearing music and hearing the the sound or the feeling of words. Sometimes the feeling of words loses the sound even. I'm thinking because I'm primarily, I think, a page poet. Dan mentioned the loss of the... Uh, Publications that we used to have back in the days of print, there were actually a number of publications, at least on the coast. They're very good publications, not just poetry, but 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 poems were published. You could look at the poem. The eye does something that the ear does not, cannot do. The eye can go backwards, forwards, left, right, up and down, examine, compare, review, um, indulge in, in a way that the ear can't because as sound travels, it's gone. It's in the past. And so memory, you can try to remember what it is you just heard. But the poem uh, as it lies on a page is present and you can inspect it and uh, there are pleasures that you know half rhymes you see or rhymes half rhymes you see them on the page you see them and, and silently appreciate them and that's a different form of appreciation I try to get to the point where both experiences are combined in performance so that uh, you are delivering uh, what it is that 
has been set down on the page, but time moves, time moves when you're performing. There's a sound that is sensory and a pulse to it, counterpoint sometimes, all of that stuff. But a sensory, a, a, a sensory experience with music that kind of is indicated with the silent display of a poem as it lies on a page in its most, its utmost abstracted form. I went to Catholic school too, just like Dan. Mm. And in high school, we had a series of, each year in high school, there were very good poem, prose and poetry for enjoyment. So that was a big, thick book that you had each of the four years in Catholic schools with a good collection of uh, uh, representations of literature of various sorts, including, of course, poetry. And I remember Drock, the one I'm still struck with it, um, A. E. Hausman, loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough. Okay, well, you hear me saying that, loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough. And you hear me sort of hum it. Well, there's the music of it the hum of it but the meaning of it when i saw it it's like what gee what to put it why not just say uh the cherry tree is lovely and has white flowers on the boughs isn't that saying the same thing isn't that the isn't that the information is aren't they both um both uh, providing the same information. Well, no, loveliest of trees and cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough is doing more than just providing botanical facts. It's providing an emotional, an emotional performance, an emotional experience as music does. This year, the in-person event is back. So Dan and I are going to confer on May 19th as to what's going on, but we're announcing the date of June 11 to meet physically again at the Hill House or some alternative maybe in Mendocino. But Dan will be recording and running the readings as usual. And uh, running the recordings on his show for as many weeks as it takes. It's an open reading. We are going to be announcing the events as we go. Dan will be announcing it with his mailing list. People should get on my email list, gblack at mcn.org, gblackn.org. And we both are going to be announcing on KZYX 
and by email as to what is going to be taking place. So that's Sunday, June 11th. So people show up when noonish. Is that when people show up? Show up they show up at noon, gather, uh, drink coffee, sip wine, uh, and uh, get together and see each other from all over the the northern counties, really. And uh, we start reading at one. Four minutes. Four minutes, which is a long time when you're up there. And uh, it's time enough for one to three poems. Knock out the personal history and boozing and so forth. It's the distilled language. And uh, so prepare. Prepare four minutes. <clears throat> and... Uh, so we run from one o'clock until we run out of poets. And then we take a break and go around town and have a good time and reappear, start to gather again at five o'clock and read again at six o'clock. So there are two sessions. The first session is a very exciting warm-up session. The evening session, people come back really strong and charged and, uh, so there are two sessions. Prepare four minutes and uh, practice. Come on in. Step up whether you've ever done it before. Whether you've never done it before, yes. Put your feet on the ground and do it. It's going to be good if you give it just some practice. And uh, that's all it takes. Okay. What if you couldn't come in the afternoon? Could you come in the evening and read? Okay. You could do one session or, or both sessions. And you you could have two four-minute segments, different one for the first session, then the second session. That's what most people do. Uh -huh. they, I'd say the majority read at both of them. But right. some people just come for one or the other. Cool. But do come and listen. You know, some people have been kind of like, well, it's a long way to go to read for four minutes, but you know, it's like to listen for a couple of hours to the other poets in your and listen and look at the poets in your community. I mean, we're an interesting group, uh, visually. Something happens with this four minute format. It's not like I'm going to drive a long <clears throat> distance to read for four minutes. Come on, come on. No. Something happens. The entire event lifts off the ground because it's it's um, it's a concentrated effort, and the audience gets lifted by the distilled language, and the entire event uh, is in at an entirely different level. Let's close with some poetry, if each of you could read. Uh, it's called Helter Shelter. Shelter in place, we hunker down. We grasp flashlight, cell phone, microwave. We shelter in place. We trace a space, duck and cover in the name of the face, the race and the holy place. We shelter in place we fall in to the fallout shelter of place we do not evolve 
We do not go past the threat of what has passed. We shelter in place. We drove it till, till it dropped. We try to get a jump start in the heart. We thicken the pace without a trace. We shelter in place, shelter in space, the place of silence between two words, the black screen between frames of light, the unmappable border between chaos and order, shelter in spaced out confusion, an illusion of protection from infection of spirit, shelter in grace. We embrace the light that makes the truth visible. We erase the false face and replace wall with doorway. We step through with sight, remain in light, we shelter in grace. Mm -hmm. nice. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, here's one. With door. For the last time, I turn your lock and place the key door now closed to me. I've given you the shoulder for years, shoved you into your approximate frame as the cabin shifted on the undulating slope, rigged you a brace bar, turnbuckle tuned, painted you white inside, hoisted sagging panels, tugged, rattled your humble handle, wrestled you creak and squeak, cabin the canyon at my back, while I stood nosing your fluorescences, off sprays of paint from some forgotten hands, colors layered, chipped, crackled, but never caught the swipe of sun on opal fog over the peeling rose. Must have been just looking at my feet. I must have been just looking at my feet. Hi, this is Shanks. I spoke with Ross Travis, professional actor, creator, buffon, clown, and circus performer, about his show this Saturday, April 22nd. The show's called Tempting Fate, and it's a satirical sideshow about the climate crisis. And I play 30 different characters in the show, and it's just about what's going on in the world around this issue. And it's in the form of theater called Buffon, which is a satirical form of physical theater that was codified in the 60s and 70s by a practitioner named Jacques Lecoq in Paris, France. And um, he had a school called the Lecoq School that was dedicated to physical theater forms. So that would be 
clown, tragedy, commedia dell'arte, um, and Buffon was one of them. So all these different styles. And um, he, so he codified this particular form, Buffon, from various different satirical traditions throughout history. Uh, one of them being the Greek satyr plays that would happen uh, during ancient Greece. You know, the uh, tragedy, they would do a tragedy show. And then afterwards, these goat looking people would come on and like make fun of it you know so that was one thing also the feast of fools celebrations during the the medieval times where like all the hunchbacks and lepers and people who had been ostracized from society and pushed to the outskirts would come in and be able to don the king's crown and like walk around and they would make fun of what they saw you know because they had a special vantage point from being on the outside looking in that they could tell a deeper truth about what they saw about this society that the people inside of it couldn't see themselves I'm actually reading right now Henry VIII's, it's like a fictional, uh, historical, non-fictional account of him. It's written as if it was an autobiography, and um, it has notes from his fool, you know, like kings used to have jesters, and the jester had a special place to the king because they could be honest in the ways that nobody else was allowed to. So he pulled from that, the Jacques Lecoq pulled from that, that tradition. Also in indigenous communities and shaman rituals throughout the world and throughout time, um, there's always been this figure that is able to uh, keep everybody, keep it real for everybody and um, keep everybody um, grounded and you know truthful so I have a question um, yeah. I'm wondering this type of performance art is this something that you've studied for a long time or ha where have you studied it what's the history for you on yeah that? so I went to school at Del Arte International which is a physical theater school up in Northern California in right outside of Arcata and Blue Lake and um, the uh, the it, it started it was started by a fellow named Carlo who was of the same generation of as is Jacques Lecoq and instead who started that school in Paris and Carlo came here to America and started um, this school here and uh, so I trained there for a year, and while I was training there in for like clown, commedia, all those forms we talked about earlier, I read his Jacques Lecoq's book, and in it there was there's not a lot of information, but there was like two pages about this form called Buffon, and I was like, oh man, that stuff looks awesome, you know, like because I had always had a 
love of comedy and also a all of my writing growing up was very social and I was interested in social issues and political issues and uh, things that were going on, especially with environment um, related stuff. So I saw that because this form is about is comedy and tragedy and combined together, I saw the potential for me to finally combine these two loves of mine because I was like the class clown, but also like would write these like kind of, um, at the time they were, oh, what's the word? Um, didactic a little bit. Like my writing when I was younger was like didactic. And so I saw the, the possibility for if I combined like my social want to make change in the world with this comedy aspect um it could not be didactic you know it could be fun and through laughter i i believe that through laughing at stuff people can make change or they start to think about issues in a new and different way you know so i was really interested in this form and um so I went to San Francisco after that to uh, train at the Circus Center, which had a professional acrobatic school that they were starting. So I went there as a circus performer, but at the same time, I had made uh, contact with a company called Naked Empire Buffon Company that was at the time the only... Uh, company dedicated exclusively to Buffon in the, I think, at least the Western United States. Um, and so I started working with them. I worked with them for three years and I went and took classes with a woman in Washington, D.C. named Dodie DeSanto, who teaches in the form. And uh, I took a month-long intensive with a fellow named Giovanni Fusetti out of Italy and trained with him and then I started making work and making solo shows I made a two-person show um, and we toured up uh, all across Canada with that it was called you killed Hamlet or guilty creatures sitting at a play and it was about our dysfunctional relationships with death in Western society. So um, that was really fun. <laughs> but um, so we did that show and then I left that company and started my own company called Antic and a Drain. And I've created three shows with the company. Uh, and this is my third one. And and so I've been doing the form for like 15 years now. So it's like pretty deeply ingrained in my work. Yeah, so. That's amazing. Yeah. So how do you train for, for a performance like this? Yeah, so it's really intense physically and vocally. And so in the beginning, the what we would do is a lot of flocking and flocking is a part of my process in creation as well and 
flocking is like a flock of birds when you see them in the sky and how they'll just change directions suddenly and it it seems like nobody's leading really um so oftentimes in a buffon pod and normally buffons hold their power in being in groups because uh, often because of their outsider status and so um the solo solo buffon show like what i'm doing is kind of a newer thing and um but so a lot of the training in the beginning is this group of buffons come in, comes in and they are flocking so they're like you're learning how to be really fast with your impulses and be able to switch characters switch um energies rhythms dynamics on like in a snap and you're working as a group so it's on, this ensemble work where you're trying to move together as one and nobody's leading you know so it's this really cool dynamic um effect and process in the beginning um and so that has continued throughout my training and it's i even on a solo show it's how i develop the work so i will go into in-depth research for for tempting fate for example i researched for six eight months all everything i was ingesting was about the climate crisis it was podcasts reading books watching movies talking to experts like every day i was like just like taking in all this information and from every angle too you know deny people who deny it exists people who are climate scientists everything and then i would get in the room with my director ronlin foreman and i would flock i would just start playing improvising and switching and just trying to get out of my own way get into a subconscious space um where i'm just basically flowing on all of the information that i've taken in and then out of that he's watching you know jotting down oh you know that at that one point you were a harpy that's interesting or you know that that um you were a cheerleader there at that point that could be an interesting character and then we would then I, we would take some of those archetypes and i would go even deeper into research for them and then they start to develop and so for example the cheerleader becomes this liberal cheerleader who's like you know everything's falling down around her they're totally losing the game but she's staying positive and trying to keep positive about it um or the harpy is this cosmic character that has come from the land of the gods you know and has this ominous message for us about scripture about things that we've forgotten maybe um so yeah that's kind of how it develops 
I think I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I don't absolutely. Know. Yeah. That made me think of so many more yeah. questions. Like, sounds like a lot of costume changes for yeah. one, for a solo performer. And I was curious that I mean I've seen a little bit of um, what you've been putting out, <laughs> and I'm curious about that aspect, like the yeah. costumes. And, yeah, totally. Yeah. So with. Uh, like I was talking about with the Buffon, like the root of Buffon, oftentimes it will just be this amorphous character that will come out and be able to jump into, switch into, like at one moment their chair, then the the person sitting on the chair, then they're like the tea in the person's mug, you know, and then they're the person again, then they're the part under the person's butt, like moaning about being under this person you know so like they can switch like that really fast um but i'm really interested in um extreme characters and max maximalist visions so i my work started to break away from that a bit and so i do have these extravagant costumes and masks and puppets and but they all come out of like this freak show that is basically taking place in a dump of the sloughed off trash of humanity and i'll be one character and then go up under a pile of trash and underneath there i'm like putting on a mask and like doing some stuff and i pop out i'm a different character so the the switching's a little bit different um, in this work, and it's, yeah, it's like the process of building those masks, and, um, you know, my, my director, Ronlin, is an incredible mask maker and visionary of, like, building worlds, and so we work together on, like, creating this this universe that you're stepping into that's like transporting you to another place kind of is the goal so yeah and then on top of that like the the characters need to be full you know so like uh the harpy there's the work of like the vocal work of the harpy's voice is like in opposition to like the liberal cheerleader what does her voice because um i've uh, even from a young age i've been really interested in like character um full transformational acting you know like daniel day lewis and um meryl streep and actors like that that you don't recognize them at all so i'm there's also like this technique underneath it all of um you know really doing everything i can to become each entity as it arises on the note of like of all of that preparation all of the study you've done um when you are performing um if you want to share this like what goes through your head while you're performing it's different when i'm doing different kinds of performance um and like it's funny because as a circus performer like when i'm doing i also do chinese pole as a circus performer and uh which is like an 18 foot 
pole that vertical pole that I'm like climbing doing flips and all kinds of tricks on there's none of that in this show but when I'm doing that a lot of the time I'm like it's very technical it's like I'm playing a character or I'm emoting something to the audience but in my head I'm like I hope I don't you know miss this trick or like I hope my leg gets you know like or sometimes it will be very banal like oh man I wonder what I'm gonna have for dinner or something you know um but in this show and oftentimes in Buffon work it's so it requires so much commitment um fully of every aspect of me that I'm really in it like really in the characters really with the audience um seeing what's landing because also the we wow. talk uh, yeah so, so you're even paying yeah. attention to your effect on the audience while you're oh for sure and it's a very important part of this style and clowning as well um but it the, we talk about in buffon like the the clown has a naive eye is very innocent but the buffon has a a spiral eye so they're almost like boring into the audience trying to peel away the layers like of an onion to get at the core of the issue so the buffon is hyper aware like there to um you know feast on this whatever the the issue is that in this case it's like the climate crisis and just like play out all these scenarios that it sees and um you know uh reflect it it's like a funhouse mirror reflection for the audience of what's going on so there's a like it's very somatic like we get into a a state of you know through breath and just like being really forward with the eyes and hyper aware um so like if someone laughs you know you're like there with them or someone groans you're like oh you and you respond to that you know so it's like very present hyper present in the in the space is there anything else you want to share like i said i'm kind of <laughs> looking forward to being excited but yeah yeah don't don't want to give too much away, yeah i guess because <laughs> you yeah. said there's 30 characters and you just went over two as examples yeah so i'm mean, looking forward to that but if there's anything else you'd like to share about the performance the show is april 22nd it's seven o'clock it's at the arena theater it's a part of this big fringe festival that they're doing that week so come see all the other stuff that's going on how can people find you or follow you um i'm on instagram tiktok all the places facebook um and my i'm at antic in a drain so that's a-n-t-i-c space i-n space a space d-r-a-i-n so it's like a clown in a drain yeah. antic in a drain and that's my company name. So if you look me up on any of those platforms, you'll find my work. And 
Thank you for doing this interview with me today for Art Waves, KZYX and Z. This is Shanks, and just a pleasure, Ross. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Up next, Gretchen France talks about the Sierra Nevada World Music Festival, returning to Boonville, June 16th through the 18th. It's exciting, you know, um, we haven't had the show since 2018 due to various factors, so trying to get back into the sync of things. And, um, of course, we have some of our old crew and new crew, but um, it's, it's great to be back with Casey Myox, that's for sure. This will be our 26th edition of the show. I've been with it since the beginning. My um, husband, Warren, founded the festival and curated the festival and grew the festival. So, you know, I was there. I always say that I was his wing gal. So, yeah, I've, I've been involved. I, I taught full time and he ran a record label called Epiphany Artists. Warren... Um, became ill after 2018 and then we had the pandemic and then he died in January, 2021. It's really been the younger generation that's kind of pushed me forward and said, you know, we really want to get back together. We want to gather, we're a family. And it, it took, it took a little convincing, but I'm really glad we're doing it. There's been so many positive things. It's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster without my guy, leading the charge, mm. but we have a great team and there's been so much support with people in the industry and it's just made me feel really, really good. This was Warren's baby. So I, it's, it's really a tribute to him that we're even happening again. So my involvement over the years was primarily operational. I would help Warren with uh, contracts. I was trained as a, a lawyer and was a, um, law professor for a long time so even though I think he knew more about contracts than I did so yeah I've been I've, I've been pretty involved we lived with it <laughs> you know 25 years we really thought we found our home in Boonville it's beautiful it's quaint our um audience loves the town and the people um have been pretty welcoming I mean I know it's hard to have um, an event come infiltrate your town. Um, so, you know, we try to keep the relationship good and try to respond to anything that's raised. You know, our focus is on the music and it's always been on the music. And that's been a very important aspect of what we do. Um, that the music that we present is conscious music and it's meant to unite people and to show that our similarities are much greater than our differences. Can you talk about the artists who are coming this year? Oh my gosh, I'm pretty excited about the lineup. My husband had really nurtured relationships in in the industry with agents, and they have been very helpful and very kind. But we have, um, we've got Burning Spear, which is huge. Mm. Um, you know, he's the king of Roots Reggae. And Barris Hammond, um, I would say he's the king of Lava's Rock. And we have Luciano, um, who's just, you know, wonderful. Derek Morgan, um, King of Ska. Taurus Riley, call him Singy Singy. He's so sweet. Oh, my gosh. We've got Emmy, um, Grammy winner, Kabaka Pyramid. We have a really wonderful act called the Sekukwate and Nagoni Ba um, out of Mali. 
and they just played at the Kennedy Center. So it's a real um, it's a real treat. And I, I hope folks hear him. And likewise, we have um, a young man named Wesley who's Haitian. Um, he's based in uh, Montreal, but he's pretty magical as well. And then oh, protege and Coco Tea, some of the Jamaican favorites and Lilaki, who's um who's a newer uh, Jamaican artist. And, and then we have our sound system guys. We have uh, Warrior Sound International, who's out of Germany, and he won some of the sound clashes down in Jamaica in 2019. And also Damien Marley has a um, sound clash on his, he has a Jamrock cruise. So we have him and Rory Stone Love and some more artists to be announced tomorrow. So, um, yeah, it's exciting and it's coming together. And um, who else do we have that I've missed? Norma Frazier, who is old school Jamaican. She had a hit, which was called First Cut is the Deepest. It was a song by Cat Stevens uh, that people might remember. The Clarendonians, who are celebrating their 60th anniversary as a vocal group. And then Soul Syndicate, which was um, which was um, a group my husband was involved with in the 70s, and they recorded on his label, Epiphany Artists. So they're they're pretty special to us. And yeah, lots, lots, lots of things. We have kids program. We've got some children's artists coming. We have um, drum workshops for the kids, some dance workshops, a Brazilian workshop. Is it <laughs> a Brazilian dance workshop? Is that what it is? Yeah, we, uh, it's a Brazilian uh, dance troupe. And then they'll also do a workshop with the kids. We really try to um, introduce the kids to the different cultures. Um, we will be having a Naya Bingi uh, drumming opening to the show, which is, you know, very special drumming from um, a lot of our Jamaican artists. And then um, we will have a Pomo um, Indian blessing. So our website is snwmf.com. If any folks are interested in volunteering, we love our volunteer family, and it's a great way to get to know other people and share a fun experience of building a festival from bottom to top. And uh, folks can um, express and stress there's a, a place um, on our website that says um, get involved. Um, it's also where vendors can send in vendor in interest, although we're getting pretty close to being sold out of, of vendors. Are the artists having any trouble getting into the country? I mean, post-COVID? You know, um, I think some are because the process has become so much slower. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting you bring that up because I I actually um, had um, a situation with an act I really, really wanted to bring in. And they had put in their paperwork pretty early and it just wasn't going to happen. And mm. not because they had any black marks on you know, their record or anything, just because everything is so slow. Um, none of the artists that um, we booked have, have any issues, um, but we also were pretty careful to make sure um, that everybody was had, had their work permits. Uh, in the past, we helped get the work permits, but because, you know, we're just coming back and, and it like I said, it's been it's been a fun challenge <laughs> to get everything rolling again. We didn't really want to take on um, getting 
the visas taken care of. Um, that was just too much. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say we wouldn't do it in the future. Mm-hmm. No, it's become horrible for artists to try to um, to um, perform in the United States. You know, 30 percent of their salary is taken um, by the IRS if you're a non-resident. And then um, California takes a percentage too. So for an artist coming over, I mean, that's a big uh, chunk of whatever, you know, fee that they're going to get. So it's really, I find it really distressing um, that it seems like we're keeping the arts out instead of welcoming these really amazing artists into the, into the country. And mm. that's been, that's been going on for a while, as, as you mentioned, it's very disappointing. And um, it's, um, Oh, you don't want to get me going. (laughs) (laughs) It's just they have so much to offer. And, you know, we learn so much from um, other cultures and and, and their songs and the way they present themselves. And it's a real um, shame to um, deny um, them, you know, the work and us the ability to to experience it, you know, especially for kids. I mean, for me, the kids are such a huge part of the show and our kids were younger when it started that they were exposed to so many different cultures and they're, you know, exposed to so many different people. And, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a very positive thing. My husband used to say that he got the ball rolling, but it was everybody that participated in the show, the vendors, the attendees, the artists, the uh, media that made the magic happen. Art Waves is heard the third Tuesday of every month at 9 a.m. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.